Now maybe I've watched too much Tomorrow's World in the past, but I'm somewhat fascinated by new technologies and how they can impact on our lives, both at home and at work. And that's why in the first series of Magnified, we had Bobby Healy with us talking about drone delivery. Well, in this series of Magnified, my next guest is also into using robotics for delivery of things like the coffees that Bobby Healy suggests could be delivered to your house by drone, albeit in different settings and very much on the ground. Maliki Ryan is Head of Sales at EMEA at Bear Robotics. Maliki, thank you very much for joining us. So, robotics. Tell us about robotics and how they apply to people's lives. Yeah, thanks, Matt, for giving me the opportunity to speak. So, robotics, from a Bear Robotics side, let me paint you the picture of what is happening right now across the whole of the globe, happening in Ireland, you name it. So what we do at the moment is, if you go into a restaurant, everybody sees the signs that says, oh, bear with us, we've staff searched us. So this is where we come in at Bear Robotics. So what happens at the moment is two ways. You can get the human to bring you to the table and you can give your order. And then what happens from that side is the order goes to the kitchen, then The chef prepares the food, he calls the robot, the robot arrives up beside the chef, the chef will load the robot with all of the food, and then he will say it's table 7, 10, 20, whatever. Press the button, the robot will drive out, and it'll autonomously drive. So it has a map of your restaurant, and say if Matt is standing up, going to the bathroom, and the robot comes up near Matt, it waits for a microsecond for Matt, if Matt doesn't move, it'll drive around Matt, or else it'll look. If Matt and there's 10 other people blocking the way, it'll look at its map and find a different route to the table. And then it drives up to the table, and it could do several things and rise to the table. If it was really bespoke and you knew the guests coming, you could nearly say, hello, Matt, here's your food, please take it. And you can either, the patron can take the food from the robot, or the server can do it. But what it does, it gives time for the human interaction. Because what we found, and I'm sure you found... It's not a replacement for human interaction. Absolutely not, Matt. No, what we always all need human interaction. You need it, I need it. What this is doing is freeing up the human from doing the hard tasks, right? Nobody wants to see their fellow human or fellow colleague carrying 15 plates, running back to the kitchen to put them into the dishwasher person, grabbing the next plates and running out. And we've all seen this, right? Because they're short on staff, they're short on time, They're running here and there, and it's not a great way for anyone to live. Besides, no, if the robot does what I would call, inverted brackets, the donkey work, does the hard tasks of carrying, the fetching, the travelling. The server, or whatever you want to call them, the front of house receptionist, has time to talk to you, inquire about your family, ask about the quality of your food, and try and enrich the dining experience. But what we're there is to try and bridge the gap where there's shortage of people. It's not exactly a new idea having a robot delivering food to the table, but every time you see it, it seems to me that it doesn't work, that you have robots are not able to negotiate. You say about going around people, but say steps or stairs in a restaurant are they get clunky and they malfunction. So how has the technology improved in that regard? At the moment, Matt, stairs will still always be a problem for robots because there's two reasons. One, if you're carrying liquids and stuff like this, it's, it's too dangerous and it's too risky, right? But in terms of going around people, the navigation now is vastly, vastly improved. And let me paint you a picture, right? Our robot has four cameras. So if there's a person or let's say a kid's toy thrown on the floor, 
what we call, they call LiDAR, right? They're sensors. One is pointing down, it sees the kid's toy, straight away detects it and looks for the quickest route around it. And it's all to do with the Wi-Fi. No matter what anybody tells you, is it what where robot firms went wrong in the past and people have learned the hard way is they never tested the strength of the Wi-Fi because the signal, so it's a GPS map, it's basically like a mini version of Google Maps. That's what it is in the dumbest down version. But if it doesn't have a strong signal, and that's why we will never do any installation unless we double and triple check everything because what we would not do and we want is a reflection on the end customer and it's a reflection on us that if a robot has stopped because the perception is then things always stop. We have tested, we have vast, vast hours of testing. We have hundreds of customers endorsements of how it works and how efficient our technology is. But every day it's improvement. We're always improving uh, software. As we get a new idea, we're always passing that on to the existing customer. Describe for me how it looks, because I suppose people have ideas of robots almost been made to look quasi-human form. So what we did, Matt, was we decided to go for a more sleeker look, right? So we went for the more professional look. So the bottom is obviously a battery, right? And the robot is about three feet tall and there's three trays on it, right? Now, what we've done then, and the bottom tray, we've put what we call a buzz tray, which is basically you can put glasses or dishes or some people put ice, but that's for your real dirty stuff. And then you can put your food on the next two levels. And what we have then is a screen on the front. We didn't go for anything fancy that, you know, with eyes or anything. We want to try and keep it that this is a part of the team. It's not a trick. It is a part of the team because what you need in kitchens, work, everything is you need tools to help you like you need a hoover you need a an oven this is part of the kitchen apparatus what we want people to start thinking of is hey i need one of these and like i can see it even happening now i work on a lot of new builds with different people say to help them to spec things out and what they're going now is oh i need 22 staff and i need three robots to do the heavy dirty lifting and that's the way people will start thinking about robots for the future. And how many human jobs could one robot take? See, Matt, this is the thing. I don't think it'll ever take a human's job because if you look at it now, the humans don't want to do the heavy lifting. I don't want to do it, and I'm sure you don't want to do it. They want to do the jobs that are, will add more value to the business. I can guarantee you now, I would go to a restaurant quicker to where a, a server spends two minutes talking to me then somewhere else where my food is just banged down in front of me and they don't ask me about it and off they go. And they all tell you they live by tips, right? But if they don't talk and interact with the humans, how are they going to get their tips? And like, there's been lots of different research done, right? Where they have proven that robots have helped profitability and they've actually helped to increase workers, not on doing the mundane tasks, but other stuff that helps the business to expand. So it's it's all about really understanding where you can use robots. Where the, will robots go in the future though? Because again, I've been watching videos recently, uh, quite remarkable videos where robots have been given arms and legs and have been able to go up and down steps and are able to balance, are able to make big jumps. There seems to be this extraordinary potential in sort of robots that actually are like humans are animals in the way that they can move. You're absolutely right. And there is a company in the States, and I'm sure the videos you have seen are from Boston Dynamics. And I mean, the changes that they are making are phenomenal. I honestly think in five, 10 years time, there'll be a lot of robots helping people doing mundane tasks, even in their house. If you think about it at the moment, everybody has, or some people have the robotic Hoover, you know, and it's, it's okay, right? But the next stages of evolution, it will get there. Like 
But what I see the most important things in robotics is a couple of things. Is if you look in the healthcare sector, right, the exoskeletons, it's a miniature form of a robot. But now they can lift up a patient on their own. It's a bit like Iron Man, right? So if you think about it, 10, 15 years time, there'll be able to be robots to help with all types of stuff, lifting, fetching, carrying, because especially with the advent of AI, artificial intelligence, it's common. Yes, yeah, I don't want to be dystopian and all this, or anyway fearful of the future, but there are people who say, okay, if you've got this combination of the physical attributes that the lies of Boston Dynamics are putting into robots, and then if you add artificial intelligence for it, that you are creating this sort of thing from 20th century sci-fi movies that scare people. Absolutely. And fear will always be a thing of everything new, Matt, right? If you think about it, the first advent of electricity, right? We all thought it'd be the ruination of us. Mobile phones. Everybody thought, that's it. Nobody's going to talk to each other. What do we all say? Maybe they were right with the mobile phones. Yeah, but it's coming back a bit, right? Because people... You go crazy first with the new stuff, but then you come back and you find the happy medium. But kids still communicate with a far reach. I would see my kids talking to cousins in America on Snapchat. I wouldn't even pretend to know how they do it. But stuff that I probably wouldn't even do. In our time, we'd phone them once every three months. But now they're talking to them once a day and sending them pictures of stuff that's happening in their own lives. There's always going to be a fear factor, right? And it's a matter of how you govern it, right? That's my firm belief is everything has to have limits and rules and how you move forward. I was looking at the video that you have um, for your product, not just the one that is shows it in the restaurant setting as it works, but also in a hotel doing room service. Just explain the simplicity of that. Yes, so we have a new one coming out, Matt, and what we call is all our different bare robotic things, we call them Servi. So the current one at the market that we just discussed a few minutes ago is called Servi. But the next one is called Servi Lift. And how that's going to work is, is very simple and that's the most exciting one I find and it's solving all of the problems is at the moment if somebody orders food so what they'll do is they'll ring down to the kitchen or ring reception and say hey I want a cheese sandwich room 1412 or whatever right right up on the 14th floor so what will happen is at the moment that would give a severe headache to the hotel they're going OMG my staff is going to be gone for 20 minutes and I can only charge maybe 4 euros to you know go all the way up with the sandwich yeah so now what happens is they will have staff in the kitchen, maybe full-time staff, whatever, make the food, call the robot. So what the robot will come in then, the doors automatically open. They'll put in, say, the sandwich for Matt and the Coca-Cola and whatever else, crisps. The door automatically closes. They'll program ro- room, say, 14, 12, or, right? The robot will drive up to the lift. It calls the lift autonomously over Bluetooth, right? So then the lift comes. It takes control of the lift up to the 14th floor, <clears throat> drives down to the hall to, to the room to say that Matt's in. It can do two ways, right? One, you can have a voice outside the door to say, please open the door. But what a lot of them are doing, and it's more discreet, is it's able to ring the phone. So it rings your phone, it's automated dial tone to say, your food is outside the door. Then there's two ways. It depends on the hotel's um, operation instruction. Some people, the door, they will scan it with their key card, the door opens, Matt takes his food and then he goes to his room or he opens the door and the robot drives into his room and then he takes out his food. But what it does is it, it frees up the staff to having to walk all the miles. It also takes away all the hargy bargy and we all know what happens of 
oh, I want time for the food, I didn't like it, all this sort of stuff. The robot will just bring you straight up to the room, you've scanned the key card, you've got it, and the food is completely safe going up to the room because the doors are automatically closed on the robot, so nobody can eat your food going up on the elevator, if you know what I mean. And this is very exciting because I'll tell you why. I'm getting requests on a daily basis from a lot of the airport hotels, things where business travellers, they don't want to go down to the bar, right? Because they just want to do their work. They're going from one flight to the next. They want to get food at an affordable price. This will help to get that under control because you won't need to charge, you know, rates to go to a room because the robot is already there. You can deploy the robot, say, all night or all day, whatever. But then during the day, it can work doing other stuff in the hotel if you have very little demand. So that thing is going all of the time once you keep the charge and the battery going. And this is something that we are inundated with calls with. We'll have it ready in the next three to four months. But what we're doing at the moment is just severe testing just to make sure. What we do is we test everything till it fails so that we can give clear data. Would it be possible to apply it then to things like hospital and nursing home settings? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. And I'm uh, already looking. So for the nursing homes, it's very simple because if you think about it, the old rule of thumb for robots is if a wheelchair can go there, a robot can go there. If you think of the gradient of the ramp, all of the stuff and everything in a nursing home or a hospital either has sensors on the doors and the doors can open. So this is the ideal setting. I actually sold ones maybe 10 years ago, Matt, from an American company that was delivering medication, right? And the big thing in America about 10 years ago was medication theft, right? So what they had was they had all different drawers it would so the pharmacy would fill it and say Dr. Malachy was on the fourth floor in room whatever starting giving out the medicine. The robot would similar thing, get the lift, go to Malachy, but Malachy only had access to drawers one and two. So they can control everything. So it's the same thing, absolutely. We are already have installations in nursing homes. We have them in casinos. So in casinos in America, the big thing is the free food and the free booze, right? So this thing goes around all of the time. But we have it in shopping centres, like uh, some people are asking from Poland, different countries, what they're doing now in shopping centres, right, is, so say Shop Unit 12 sells toys or something, you know? It can say, come to Maliki's shop, Unit 12, see the latest Lego. And I have it for a week, then Matt's shop will pay whoever owns the robot to do it and it's doing all this sort of stuff or it might be giving out flyers or samples and what I see a lot of and because it's early doors people stopping the robot to get their picture taken with it I know and that's only new but that you know it'll become norm I can send you on videos and you've probably seen them in nursing homes where the residents now don't blink an eyelid where it comes into the room brings them whatever they need and off it goes. How expensive are these devices and how much will the price keep falling? Because that tends to be the way with technologies. Absolutely, Matt. Uh, technology, uh, what happens is the first six months we get it to market. Then once we can mass produce, it comes down to maybe 30, 40%. So our current one on the market, Matt, the one with the, say, the two trays and the buzz, buzz bucket is about 11,000 euros, which is kind of cheap, right? Then we have a next one coming out, which will be double the capacity. That would be about 14,000. Now, the lift one, we're not sure yet, right? Because we just have to tie up because there's a bit of installation costs where we have to tie up with the lift companies and all that. But we'd expect it to be around the 30K mark, I would imagine. But again, once we're ready to come to market, it'll be somewhere in or around that sort of price frame. How did you get into all of this? To be honest with you, Matt, it's very... I never did robotics in college. What I did uh, it was very... I did 
mechanical engineering because my brother was doing mechanical engineering. I was like, oh, that looks an interesting course. So I was doing it. And then when I was in year one, I went to Athlone because I'm from North Galway. And Intel came down and they were doing this big recruitment drive. Oh, come up and do the aptitude test. So I think there was like 50 or 60 lads in my class. So we all went up for the day out, of course, to Intel to do the aptitude test. Then I got through to the interview and all this stuff. And they're like, okay, we're going to hire you. So finished college Friday, started Intel Monday morning. But what, what was kind of uh, strange uh, uh, and funny was my brother was obviously a few years older than me but we both started the same day completely accidentally even though I had the job got a year before he was interviewed from you know another company we both started on the same day on the same shift so, and in the same you know Intel is split up into little factories so it was like the Ryan brothers working on the lines and how we got into robotics is very simple is one malfunctioned and of course me being young told not to told to go at it or went at it and fixed it not too sure how we fixed it and then it kind of built from there and that you did you went at it and I just learned and then went to different companies. And as you go to different companies, so you learn more. You go to different companies. Intel is a massive employer in Ireland, about 5,000 people at any given time. And yet, possibly because it's not in Dublin, it's down in Leeds, it's in Kildare, manages to maintain maybe a lower profile than it should. What do you learn from working in a company like Intel? one of the world's market leaders. What I found was the uh, thing about teamwork. What, what kind of astonished me now, I was there, you have to remember, it was my very first job, but what astonished me was you were given a Pacific equipment set to fix, right? No matter what, everyone would come over and say, right, can I help you? Even though it might be their tea break time or the team of technicians, everyone, it was a bit like Star Trek. I remember looking at everybody in their blue coats because the side that I worked in wouldn't be the spacesuit side, for want of a better word. It was the old motherboard production. But everyone was willing to help, right? And everything was so structured and you learn the tiers and how to do it and everyone kind of helping together and training you. And the, what I really learned, though, was the value of knowledge, you know, if you don't know something, they're like, well, what do you not know? Well, I'm not too sure about electronics or I'm not too sure how to do it. Okay, there's a training course next week. You can go on it and you can learn from there. And it was like, that to me astonished. And that's something I always try to bring forward is everybody should roll up their sleeves from top tier management down to the lowest level. Never ask someone to do something you wouldn't do yourself. And it's something I've always brought forward. So you went from Intel to what? So I left, I was in Intel for about two years. Then I went to Xerox. So I had an opportunity with Xerox and Xerox was doing a startup. Now that was a kind of a strange one because at that time they were moving the business from a small village in the middle of the UK called Mitchelteen back to Ireland. Now if I paint you the picture, right? This factory was in the middle and then all the houses were built around it. So you can imagine all these Irish guys coming over going, we're going to close your factory and we're moving everything over to Ireland. There'll be nothing there. And this is what happened. This is about, this must be 20, 25 years ago. Now, obviously it wasn't my decision, but we had to learn the technology. So what Xerox were doing that time at was industrial printers, right? So these things were maybe the length of your kitchen. So they could be 20 feet, but they were for ESB. Um, these guys would pay, do 180 pages a minute, double-sided, and they could make a book and all this stuff. So what they would do was they'd strip it all down, clean it with CO2, throw out, say, anthem plastic and rebuild it back up and then lease it out to companies. So they never sold. So say they'd give it to Matt Cooper and you pay 0.1 of a cent per page and that's how they got the revenue. But we had to learn this. You can imagine as a young fella going in and they go, that's your section. you got to write the process of how to take all of this machine apart, how to put it all back together and how to build it. And we started the business. So we were in England for about six months now and we would never leave our hotel or anything. So you flew in. Monday morning, went to the factory, didn't really talk to many people, learned how to do it. Home Friday, 
back home to Galway. But when we moved to Dundalk, Matt... But sorry, did they realise that you were learning the processes to effectively yes, put them out of work? absolutely. And what happened, Matt, was they had a few guys that volunteered to do it. So they already knew it was closing. Absolutely. This was well a thing. So they had maybe about 10 people that would help us. But they were... Their neighbours wouldn't even talk to them. They were best friends. It was a, it was a real eye-opener just to show you how ruthless business is, you know. But again, I was only a small cog in the chain. But yeah, they knew all of this. And when we arrived back to Dundalk, the first robot, we, or the first, sorry, printer we built, I remember it was our job to get it going. So it was built on the production line. You can imagine guys that had never built machines. It took us two and a half weeks to get the first one going because... I remember turning on the first one and it started running backwards and I'm going, what? Because just people weren't used to following processes. But by the time I left, after about, say, three years, we could turn them around in about three hours, four hours, because the machine starts to kick into place. People figured out how to follow the process. Things got sharper. And that was really where it went from there, you know? And it was, that was a great learning because startups, startups are fantastic because you have a title. So my title could have been senior technician, but you could be doing anything, right? You could be helping the guys in the production line. You could be figuring out why it's running backwards. You could be doing anything. I remember we were packing machines in Holland because we had an order. Just that's what excites me as startups. It's go for it. Everyone helps rolls in together. But you did your own startup then, didn't you? In probably less technical and more of a sort of a Celtic Tiger bubble company, was it? Absolutely, Matt. Yeah, I'm always one to uh, to spot a gap in the market. And I remember how it all started was when I was in Intel, I was on the, uh, what they call the night shift, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, right? And I was living with Tyler's, ceramic tilers, you know, they're their own business. And there was me driving my little Opel Corsa, barely able to afford it. And there's the boys with the Land Cruisers. And I'm thinking, hold on now, this doesn't compute. There's me in doing overtime. Like when you're a single fella, you do every day overtime because, you know, and you're like, I still don't have any money. What's going on? So then I was watching the gap in the market, went to Xerox and I was thinking to myself, hold on now, the market is just getting hotter. And as you say, the Celtic bubble was starting. I decided to give it a go and I started my own uh, Thailand business. But a, a typical me, I don't start small. I usually go big. And I remember passing a site in Galway and I went in and I'm like, oh, you're building these block of houses. And the first job I ever got was 445 houses. It wasn't one. <laughs> and I was like... Sorry, how did you persuade them that given that you didn't have a background in tiling, that you would be able to organise and accomplish the tiling of 445 houses? It's it's the gift of sales, Matt. And I'm sure you kind of see that I'm not stuck for, for stuff to say. Um, well, you see, we had worked... I was able to tell them that we would have people that could do it. And which I did was I relied on experts to help me at the start, right? So previous relationships, all business, as you know, is all relationships. It isn't what you know, it's who you know, right? People that can help you, experts. So I'm like, look, we can do this. It just, it's all about personality. People buy from people. No matter what you're selling, from a lollipop to a 20 million deal, 
if a person don't like you, there's 97% chance they won't deal with you. Yeah, but how did you even know how to price a job like that? To be honest, you met a lot of it was kind of guessing, you know. Um, but it's the old rule of thumb, right? It's fairly simple. Like, if you, and that time it was fairly risky because I was supplying everything. Tiles, labour, everything. But you bring up other people. People love to talk to you. Hey, what do you charge in Dublin? I charge X. Okay, what do you charge in Roscommon? Okay, what you charge and thing and like I know different people that they're fairly willing to do it and also I done it the bit of a cheeky way was phone up the ad in the paper uh, you know I have three bathrooms to do how much will you charge me and then took a took a, a rule of thumb from there didn't get hugely rich in the first job but learned how to do it and from there we ramped up to about 29 staff and we used to do all of the bigger jobs throughout the whole of the country and again it's like Anthony Matt is the right people to do the right jobs build the right team Lads is good at their job. My wife was helping me from the paperwork side because I just wouldn't have time. If you're out wheeling and dealing, I wouldn't be watching the money. So you need someone else to mind that sort of stuff. And we went from there and just lucky. It was a great experience. It was something I always wanted to do because even from a small kid, I always wanted to have my own company and have your name on your vans. And look, we lived that dream, right? And we got the shot for it too. You know. How long did you get out of that? Got about four and a half years, five years. With just, I could see the slump coming. Very luckily, I'd seen it coming because I uh, priced a particular job in Westmeath. One that I would normally get because I've been working for same builders for years, you know. And he's like, oh, you're like 50% too dear. And I'm like, what? And then when, it, and he went through it with me. I'm like, all right, okay. So then I started to very quickly get rid of some staff. But then, of course, we got burnt in one or two jobs. And you had no legal, <coughs> excuse me, we had no legal recourse, tried it. Just some As builders. weren't paid. By the yeah, absolutely. Decision. And it's always the fella that you think will. He's the fella that'll do it. And he, he didn't live too far away from me. I'll never mention names. But that was, that done us to the tune of about 60,000, you know. So that was a fair hit to take when the kids were tiny. And it was a fair shock. And I swore from that day forward that I would never, you know, go back to that sort of uh, cutthroat business where you've no recourse. Like you have to be in a business where you have cast iron contracts that if you don't pay me, I have the legal right to go to court and say, well, Matt didn't pay me because da, 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 da. And someone can make a fair thing. But what really shocks me is it's stacked against the small man because up to 5,000 euros, I could go to small claims court and cost, what, 7, 10 euros, right? But after that, I wouldn't have the financial money to risk going to court because solicitors and all this stuff is wildly expensive. To me, I always thought, and I've even said it to my local politicians, why is there not some sort of a recourse where... A tradesperson go in and say, look, I did this work for this person X. Look at the quality of the work. They're refusing to pay me. And it might be maybe only a thousand pounds. But you represent yourself, right? Where it's fair and honest way of doing it. But when you have to go to the judicial system where it costs an absolute fortune, it's too risky. Because at the time, I was a sole trader. So everything, house and everything was all tied to the business. If you were LTD, I'd have no problem going to it. But when you're a sole trader... It's a different ball game when everything you own is on the line all of the time. But if you had to wind up the company and you were owed money, I mean, how fearful did that make you about the future back at the time when the crash happened? At the time, Matt, yeah, I was pretty fearful. But like what I've always been built with is inbuilt resilience. You know, like I always believe in reinventing yourself or going back to what you know. And like at the time I sat down with the family and... my wife and like obviously kids were too young but like right I'm always big into robotics how would I get back into the top of my game what path do I need to take to go and that's when I started looking at med- medical device and thought wow this is enormous 
and it's all on my doorstep. If you look at it, Galway... medical devices is very much a Galway-based industry in Ireland, isn't it? Absolutely, Matt. It's huge. And I mean, you have the market leaders and they're recognised at the market leaders. Like, I mean, the stuff that they're doing in Galway, there's like five, six companies there. They're phenomenal. Like, and the stuff that they're doing and they're expanding and what they've done for the community because they've hired as many local people as possible, but they're also giving work to local robotic firms, local you know distribution companies they're giving everybody a chance they're not just saying oh we're massive you have to be massive to work with us and that's when the idea of working for boston scientific emerged and i went and applied for a job and told them straight up everything about where it was and all this sort of stuff and they were pretty happy for me to come on board and similar type position that i did say back with intel or xerox working production lines fixing machines that sort of stuff, but learned about the medical device company. And what I learned in there was phenomenal. I mean, again, cross-functional teams, but a business that is highly organized and highly regulated. And that's probably where I struggled a little bit, maybe at the start, was paperwork. I'm not big into paperwork, but medical device, every single thing has to be documented. And that's what's made me sharper kind of for later on in life is forcing yourself have to do it. Like, because if you weren't done it, They'd be after you straight away. Hey, what's the story with this? We need to do this. And it just even showed how the products they have are enhancing people's lives, right? I mean, Boston Scientific fixing, you know, clots, putting in stents. Like, that's amazing stuff to do. And you had the people had the opportunity to go and see an operation if they wanted to, to show, look, this is the product that we make. Look at how it's enhanced that person's life. And that's when I'm thinking, wow, okay. This is what I really want to do is, yes, do something that is really good, but leave a lasting legacy to say, hey, I did that and it's improved people's lives, even if it's only in a small way. But after Boston Scientific, you went into then specific robotics companies, wasn't Absolutely, it? yes. So I wanted to get back into my core love, which was robotics. So I had the opportunity to go working for a company here based in Swords called Handley Automation, which was a fantastic company. And what they did then was they had a couple of different businesses. So they had the main business, which would sell into medical device companies, you know, sell your sensors, your PLCs, your standard stuff, right, to keep a factory going. But they also had a, a startup kind of robotic business. And that's where I went and headed it up from that side. And I sold all types of robots from them guys, from robots that would deliver pallets around a factory from high-speed robotics to slow-speed robotics. And the big thing that time was the cobots were starting to emerge. And everyone, cobots? Yes. Now, what's the difference between a cobot and a robot? So, very simply, Matt, a robot has to be in a cage, right? So, if we have a robot in the middle of the table, legally and ethically, you need to have a cage right around the table, maybe three, four foot high, because a robot will not stop. If I put my head in and a robot is turning... The robot will not stop until it breaks. It will turn around and keep turning, regardless if your head or your hand is there. So that's why you need to have a cage. And when you open the cage, it's interlocked, so it'll kill the robot straight away, yeah? Legally, um, all safety regulations, you're not allowed to have one without being caged. The next thing is called a cobot, which is the old thing of co-worker. Work with the human, right? So what they've done is the special torque settings on these now that... As soon as you touch against it, the whole skin of the robot, the sensors on it, it'll stop dead straight away. So you can put your hand in. And the old thing was, when we used to bring a cobot to a trade show, you'd get three or 400 people that all want to stop the robot. Put their hand in or put their head in and let the robot touch off them. And then they'd get their picture taken and off they'd go. That is the new thing now, is the cobot. Well, it's not new, right? It's 
eight, nine years old, ten years old now, and there's a lot of amazing companies building all types of cobalt, but it's to work with the human. And the whole idea was the medical device, if years ago when I was in it, be all squashed together, right? Jam side by side, you did your job, you passed it to me, I did my bit, I passed it to him, right? But now what they're doing is, and COVID was the big thing, right? You're obviously seeing it that if, God forbid, the person beside me was sick, I was sick, the next person was sick, suddenly from a, you know, even from a human viewpoint, all of us have spread disease to each other. Now the idea is the cobalt can allow people to spread out and you're not doing the mind-numbing tasks of putting on a catheter together or putting a screw in a bolt. You're now off doing more intelligent stuff and not knocking anybody. I've done this stuff for years myself. It just gives you a chance to free them up and the cobalt was all about that, is to give people a chance to do other stuff and that's how it started and like now they're doing all types of stuff. If you've even seen it, Matt, I'm sure you've seen the videos of the burger flipping, yes, chip frying. These are the things they're all rushing to do. Like, and that's the way it's going. Like, that's the future of it, really. You know. But there will be a role for human in overseeing it or whatever. That we won't end up. But it's all going to be all worked on by robots. It could be the stuff that people don't want to do, such as maybe the Amazon factories in the warehouses at present, is becoming more robust because you don't really want people 12 hours a day doing back-breaking work, getting stuff off shelves. Absolutely, man. And that, that is the way it goes. Warehouses, uh, long distance of travel is where the jobs that people really want to automate. Like, you know, if you think about it, the old car, you know, where you went for your spare parts and the man said to you, oh, you want brakes? He's gone for about 20 minutes and then he comes back and you're going, oh no, it's actually it's the other ones. So now he can just type it in. He can be serving the next customer and the robot will come and bring up the parts to him. It's, it's all that sort of stuff that you don't... It's kind of saving the human body, right? Because we're only meant to do so much, but we're not meant to push ourselves to capacity. It's only when people are later on in life that they have the aches and pains. How expensive is it to develop all this stuff though? Bear Robotics, tell us about that, your employer. Is that an Irish company or an American one? So it's an American startup and like the investment, Matt, it takes a lot, a lot of money to get this. And what a lot of the time is, and I'm sure you're well aware this being business guru, is a lot of startups, investors will do seven out of 10 rule, right? So they'll invest in 10 companies, seven will fail and three will make it big. And you have a very small window to uh, get your investors to give you a second round. And I've followed this, it's fascinated me this about the, the startup and how very fine line it is. Some people have great products, but they just haven't got the second round of investment and then it's gone. Like we've got huge investment, like our last round was something the tune to maybe 30 million, you know? It's a lot, a lot of investment, but what it is is ongoing. Right, R&D is our biggest cost because yes, we have one product, but that's no good because five weeks time or five months time, someone else has something similar. We need to keep pushing. We need to keep pushing forward. And that's why for me and a lot of the global sales team that I would be talking to is get feedback, get feedback, find out from customers. I want people to tell me what they see wrong with the robots so we can fix it. We can make it better. We can make it more efficient because if you don't tell us, we're not going to know. Well then let me finish on this point. I don't know whether you've thought of this, but do you have a dream robotic product? Do you have something that you think you'd love to see your company develop? Well for our company yeah, the next the next big thing really is what I want to see and it's not even our company but is to go the last mile, to do everything but what we want to do is to be all tied together because at the moment right, Spare Robotics works on their own Matt has his robots frying the chips, but they don't talk, right? So now what we want to do is everything to work in unison. 
but for me, what I really want to see, not even from the bare robotic side, is from the human side. I mean, I'm sure you've seen these exoskeletons, all this sort of stuff that is even for people that has Parkinson. I don't know if you've seen that. But I've seen exoskeleton Mark, Mark Pollock, the adventurer, who, of course, first of all was dealing with blindness and then was paralysed by a fall. And he has been working very much with exoskeleton. Yeah. And he's shown me the stuff that he's done. So I presume that's what you mean. Yes, it's something like that, Matt. Absolutely. That is the sort of stuff that I want to see developed all of the time and like what what will happen and I, I know this um we haven't done the pipeline yet but i have a robot in my house I, it's only a matter of years few years time where they'll be so cheap that matt will have it in his house doing small things you know what i mean and doing the housework well look that's that's a talk between you and mrs cooper i won't get involved in that at all right um doing mundane tasks but what will happen is the next stage of evolution right is all of these robots can only be inside they can't go outside yet because sunlight affects the sensors. So the next stage is when they can be able to do work inside and outside. That is the holy grail. Oh, sorry, you're saying the sensors mean they can't move between inside and outside? No, inside only. Because if you think about it, sunlight, none of these are made to be outdoors. None of all of these mobile robots are only inside only, Matt. And that's the holy grail is that people have blocks of apartments and stuff like this where it can work inside efficiently. There is outdoor robots, right? But they are not inside and outside. That is the next stage that everyone's working hard to cover. When you can do that, that's when you're absolutely on a huge winner. Maliki Ryan from Bear Robotics, thank you for joining us on the Magnified Podcast.